This episode of New Politics was released on the 18th of November, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, a High Court ruling ends indefinite detention, but what are the next steps? The misinformation laws are said to be watered down. The case against David McBride continues. Another MP resigns from the Liberal Party. And another Albanese sets the record straight on the situation in Gaza. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, advisor to Peter Dutton on High Court decisions. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Parliament was sitting this week and the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese returned after his state visits to China and Tuvalu. And thank goodness for that. It means that we won't hear any more complaints about Airbus Albo for a little while. And there's always a wide range of political issues that need to be dealt with. And the first one was in response to the High Court decision that an asylum seeker had been unlawfully detained in immigration detention, which means that all indefinite detention for asylum seekers was unlawful and they had to be released immediately. And that was 81 people in total. And this is now straight into the bread and butter of Liberal Party politics. Whenever there's an issue that relates to asylum seekers and immigration, the Liberal Party will be there with their megaphone and telling everyone how this is all the end of the world and that the Labor government can't be trusted on national security and they're allowing terrorists to live within the community. But these are important points of law. Governments should not be allowed to detain anyone indefinitely and the law needs to be applied correctly. And this decision overturns a previous High Court ruling in 2004 that said that it was lawful to detain asylum seekers indefinitely. And the government has now rushed through legislation to work out what to do with this group of people who are stateless. But given the politics of asylum seekers in Australia, the government will probably introduce new laws that are just as draconian. One of the hallmarks of a functioning democracy is how it treats the less fortunate. I'm not sure Australia is a functioning democracy at the moment. I think, too, due process in arrest and in detention is absolutely vital. There's been people in detention who've been in detention for more than four or five years. I think there's at least one on 15 years and it's just not on. Okay, they process everyone as they come through to make sure that they're healthy, that to make sure that they're not criminals of some kind. And study after study after study has shown that the criminals tend to fly and not come in by boat. And you have to make sure that they're genuine refugees. So there may be an argument for some kind of detention while these are being processed. I would say detention is not the right way to start, but that processing and keeping them separate from the greater Australian public for a reasonable period of time, which I guess would depend on how many need to be processed, is one way of doing it. I think to keep someone in for 15 years without charge, without trial and without any other valid reason is just appalling. And another indictment on Australia's increasingly poor record of human rights. 
And all of these people who have been released have been classified as stateless, and some of them are facing the death penalty if they are returned to the country of origin, and Australia is not permitted to do that legally. And quite a few of these people have failed their applications on the character test, and a small number have committed high-level criminal offences in their country of origin. But it's the essence of Australian law that, except in a few small exceptional cases, people cannot be incarcerated forever. And the High Court ruling from 2004 has not only underpinned indefinite detention for stateless people, but for all people who are seeking asylum, and even for those people who were deemed to be genuine refugees. So that's a system that advocates for refugees have been arguing against for many, many years. And we had those incidents of asylum seekers on Nauru and Manus Island, as you mentioned, David, for many, many years, even before their cases were heard. So the whole system was draconian and inhumane, and now that's all over. Now, we're not sure what the next steps are, because the High Court hasn't released the reasons for their decision, and that won't become available until next year. But it hasn't stopped Peter Dutton from ramping up the fear and loathing and claiming that all of these people are hardcore criminals and possibly terrorists. And now the Liberal Party is blowing the trumpet as hard as they can on this and making that link between asylum seekers, the voice of parliament, anti-Semitism, immigration. And I think they probably would have added a few more, but they just couldn't think of any more. And they've now claimed that the Labor government is doing their best to cause division and not keeping the community safe. And it doesn't matter if none of this is true. This is the agenda that Peter Dutton is going to keep pushing. And the Labor government just doesn't seem to have any comeback to any of this. And after all of these years, the Labor Party still hasn't worked out how to neutralise this issue politically. And it was the Labor Party who introduced mandatory detention back in 1992. And then the coalition weaponised asylum seekers and sought political opportunity from this issue from around 1998 onwards. And then they got that political benefit from all of this with the Tampa incident in 2001 and 9-11 events in New York. And they've used these issues for political benefit for 25 years. And 25 years for the Labor Party to work out a political strategy for dealing with the issue and doing what's right for refugees and asylum seekers. And they just haven't been able to do this. And all they do is draw up bad legislation to make it seem like they're tough on refugees and hope that the issue just goes away. But it's not going to go away. It's only going to go worse. Environmental uh, refugees are going to be massive. The chance of conflict spreading or joining up in the Middle East from the subcontinent is fairly reasonable. A couple of natural disasters and suddenly Australia becomes a place where refugees go. Now, the other thing too is that a lot of refugees don't really want to come to Australia, at least from a logistics point of view, because it's a long way away from anywhere. There's major nations between, and most refugees just want to get to the first country that will offer them sanctuary. Australia's not really the first country that will offer a lot of people sanctuary because there's countries in between. So refugees coming from the Middle East have come a long, long way. And it's only because they can't get anywhere closer. So Australia's big panic that will be flooded by millions of refugees is a bit overblown. And if we are flooded by millions of refugees, it means that there's tens of millions of refugees out there that have already found some kind of accommodation. I know that elements of the discussion try and claim that Australia is sold as a soft place where you get a free house and a free car and none of that is true. And until this week, the only thing that you could be relatively certain of is that you would be going into detention in a pretty uncomfortable place 
indefinitely, and indefinitely can be a long time. I hope the government doesn't bring in worse laws, but um, I can't imagine that uh, they're going to think of more humanitarian laws at the moment. And the other issue is that Peter Dutton isn't really going to change on any of these issues, and nor is the Liberal Party at the moment. They're probably going to rail against activist judges, even though the Liberal Party appointed a majority of the judges on the High Court at the moment. And now Peter Dutton is saying that the Prime Minister shouldn't have gone to the APEC meeting until this issue was sorted out. Now, the good thing about any government is that there's a number of Cabinet Ministers that do have responsibilities for different things, and all of this can be sorted out by the Home Affairs Minister and the Minister for Immigration. Here's the Minister for Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill, discussing the issue during the week. Let me just share a little bit of background with the Parliament. Uh, on Wednesday last week, the High Court overturned a 20-year precedent that has governed how successive Commonwealth governments in our country have managed the detention of non-citizens. What the High Court has told us is that it does not want ministers of any political persuasion in this country to make decisions that are akin to punishment. Now, I make that point to the Parliament Speaker, and I want the Parliament to understand that this was a full court decision of the High Court of our country, and it was made on a constitutional basis. The idea that our government has any choice whatsoever about whether we comply with the High Court's decision is absolute garbage, and anyone in the, in the parliament or anyone outside of it who is arguing in any different needs to go back to grade six and take a little bit of constitutional law in. Our system is built on the separation of powers, and that means that as a minister, just like anyone who is sitting in the public gallery, I am required to abide by the law of the land. And the law of the land in this instance has been set down by the High Court and our government has no choice but to follow it. The implications of this is that a group of people have been released from immigration detention. And I don't mind telling the parliament that if it were up to me, none of those people would have been released from immigration detention. None of them. It is not up to me. The High Court of Australia has given a direction to our government that we must release these people from detention and we have no choice but to follow that direction. Now, Speaker, I want to address a number of falsehoods that have been raised by the opposition in this debate. And the first is one that I've heard directly from the Leader of the Opposition. And what he has come out today is something, just frankly and very directly, is incredibly stupid. He has come out today and said, oh, don't worry about the Constitution, just pass a law to put them all back in detention. Well, I just want to remind the Leader of the Opposition, who has been here for 22 years, Speaker, that he knows and I know that the Australian Constitution and a full court decision of the High Court cannot just be overturned by a decision of, cha of this chamber. That is not the political system in which we operate. I know it and he knows it. But it doesn't really matter what the minister says. It's obvious that the Liberal Party will keep playing politics with this issue and the government needs to keep fighting back. And the key issue is, well, how do they do that? How can they achieve their agendas that are compatible with their values and ramp things down politically? And I just think that's a pretty tough ask. But it was the Liberal Party that created these laws and they were found to be unconstitutional. The government just needs to let the electorate know that it was actually the LNP that made the community unsafe and swing it back onto them politically. And this is what basic politics is all about. And the other thing is that these are fairly basic legal issues as well. Apply the rule of law, make clear rules about how long asylum seekers can be held for and what they need to do to achieve a particular 
visa status. And these are basic human rights issues, and all of this was missing in the previous legislation. And so, as you mentioned, David, some of these people have been in detention for almost 16 years. I think there's one or two. And 120 people have been in detention for over five years. And the government can make legislation that's constitutionally safe and uphold human rights and apply the law correctly. The government does have to balance these rights and the concerns of the community. And of course, it's going to have a political problem on its hands if any of the group of people that have been released offend while they're on a bridging visa. And I'm sure that News Corporation and all of those journalists at the Daily Telegraph will be out there to report on this if it ever does happen. But there will have to be a legislative solution to this, and governments now know that they cannot detain asylum seekers forever. And they shouldn't. Uh, let me finish this before you start all hammering on keyboards. I think the aim of any refugee is to send as many people back to their home country as they can once it is safe, because I don't think it's right to keep the best and brightest of a country that's coming out of ruin. Having said that, quite a lot of amazing people came here as refugees and have made Australia a much better place. So I don't want to say, oh, we've got to send them all back and just dump them back in a war zone. I do want to... Well, I hope not, David, because I might actually be one of those people that are sent back. No, that's exactly right. And after World War II, of course, we had that great expansion and the vast, vast majority of people made Australia a much better place. Several weeks ago, we discussed the misinformation and truth in political advertising laws that the Labor government was planning to introduce in the wake of the defeat of the Voice to Parliament referendum, which saw every possible piece of misinformation introduced to the public debate. And before it's even come to the point of fully drafting up the legislation, the Communications Minister, Michelle Rowland, has indicated that there will be other considerations that they'll be taking into account, including issues related to religious freedom and libertarian freedom of speech issues. And there's no question that the electorate wants to see misinformation and truth in political advertising laws. In recent opinion polls, 87% of people said, yes, this is what we want. And with that amount of public support, you'd think, well, what's the federal government waiting for? These laws should have been put in place over a year ago. And with most high-level or controversial legislation a government proposes, they asked for public submissions. And the government received 23,000 responses. And this was after a campaign from the Coalition and One Nation and the former Liberal National Party MP, George Christensen, to lobby the government about this. And most of the responses were critical of the proposed bill. So most of these responses came from the people and the political parties that will benefit the most by keeping things as they are. And this brings up the fundamental question. What's the point of Labor being in government if it proposes to act in the public interest and then retreats when there's opposition from the usual suspects? The Liberal Party's not in government, nor is the National Party, nor is One Nation. George Christensen isn't even a member of the parliament anymore. Religious institutions are not the government. But it says it all that the people who benefit the most from being able to lie about their agenda are opposed to truth in political advertising laws. And the Labor government wants to roll over and act in these people's interests and not the public interest. It's funny how the people who come out in favour of not changing the law 
seem to be the ones who may have dodgy dealings and may not always give the full picture of various issues that crop up from time to time. Something is better than nothing. And I know that it it will be very hard to prove whether people have deliberately misled uh, in some cases. But I guess the hope is there's a deterrence there that an expensive court case might make it more difficult for a party to run the next election. I suppose there's the risk of frivolous and mischievous cases but the courts are usually pretty okay at sniffing those out and and dismissing them at little to no cost to the defendants um, if they're frivolous or, or mischievous. So if you continually say, oh, the Greens are using false climate science and you take that to court, the judge might say, look, the science they are using is pretty valid. It's pretty consistent. And even if it's wrong, there's a case to be made that they're not lying about this. Stop suing them, basically. Nothing's foolproof. But if you can put in barriers or obstacles to make everyone behave better, this is not a bad thing. And there will be difficulties in creating the right type of legislation, but that's what it's like for all legislation. Like it's it's hard work actually producing the right sort of legislation, and most governments are up to the task. And if there's any doubt, well, they could always look at Canada or New Zealand, who have got similar sort of laws relating to truth for news broadcasters, and they could actually look closer to home in South Australia, which has had truth in political advertising laws since the 1980s. And last time I looked, South Australia still exists, so the sky hasn't fallen in there. And it's hard to understand why the Labor government wouldn't want to have strong legislation in this area. It's the conservative forces in this country that have benefited from just being able to say whatever they want to say. And and you're left wondering as well, well, why would the churches want to be exempt from political advertising laws? It just means that if they wanted to launch a campaign, well, for example, against same-sex marriage or against transgender people, they could just say whatever they wanted to. And just because it's a church, it's not it's, you know, it's not that they're unlikely to lie about these issues. And if anything, you probably need stronger laws for religious institutions. There's a sense that if you have a certain view of religion, that all religion is based on a lie. So I can see why the church might be worried that take them out of the public discourse. So I can see a caveat there that would allow personal belief that to person A, is a genuine and true and completely correct worldview. Honestly put, genuinely put, it might be wrong, but it's not a lie. As opposed to person B, who thinks that everything the church has ever said, ever, at any time, in any place, is a lie because it historically doesn't stand up and it scientifically doesn't stand up. So I can sort of see the argument for it. A protection on valid organisations that may not be completely embraced by the whole of the community for reasons of many things. But that doesn't mean to say that they should be exempt from the law, okay? We accept that a church may be based on a historical myth, may be based on shaky archaeological evidence and, of course, very, very shaky scientific evidence. But fundamentally, those tenets are genuine expressions of faith. When it gets into the specifics, the church has the exact same responsibility as the National Party, as the Greens, as the Labor Party, as the Liberal Party, as the legalized marijuana party to tell the truth and to be honest about what they want and who they're aligned with. If the easy solution would be to just exempt the church, but 
I think that it's worth putting a little bit more effort in so that genuine expressions of faith can be brought into the public discourse. Oh, well, I guess it ends up being a problem if the churches decide to start campaigning on issues that are outside social issues, like if they start campaigning on the GST or the role of the military or public infrastructure. And I can't say that ever happening, but you never know. And there has to be a consideration for all of these unintended consequences and making sure that the legislation is broad enough to cover all of these areas where the misinformation and political lies are likely to appear and specific enough to deter this misinformation and political lie from happening. And we have discussed this issue in the past. This isn't going to stop misinformation, but anything that's effective in reducing misinformation should be encouraged and implemented, as you suggested, David. But for me, this has got all the signs of legislation that is going to be put in place but doesn't seem to do very much. And if you're trying to appease all the people that are making complaints about the legislation and if they've got ulterior motivations and gain the political benefit from having these laws watered down, well, it just means that you are not really serious about this issue and you're not really serious about the legislation. You can then go and say to the public, well, look, 87% of you wanted laws to stop misinformation and lies in political advertising. Here's the legislation. But when it actually comes to stopping that misinformation, it's going to be very ineffective. And strong, tough laws should have been introduced well over a year ago, and now it's being deferred until well into next year. And I'm thinking, well, what's the point of this exercise if you're just going to appease every interest group out there for no good reason and water down the laws to make them ineffective? It just doesn't make any sense to me. The Labor Party has lost a lot of trust from some of its supporters since the election. I don't think supporting more misinformation is going to win that trust back. I think they've got to really make some very hard decisions and it may damage them in the short term, but in the long term, it will be something they'll be able to campaign on. I don't see how that could go terribly wrong. Oh, well, the thing is that this is low-hanging fruit as far as the legislative process is concerned. I'm just very bemused as to why they're not rushing this through as quickly as possible. Like, it's there's public support for it, and this will set up a system that reduces the level of misinformation. It just bemuses me that this process has been stalled in this way. I, I mean, I guess there's a sense in which... People shouldn't be afraid of government. Government should be, be afraid of people. And we might be seeing elements of that at the moment. And if that's the case, that's probably a good thing. But yeah, I'd be moving it up the priority chain a little bit. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon.
And the trial of David McBride has commenced in Canberra, and this relates to the material that he leaked to the media that led to uncovering of war crimes committed by Australian troops in Afghanistan. And the issue is that he shouldn't be there at all. And you would think that uncovering war crimes is something that is in the public interest, and the government seems to be arguing that even if actions are uncovered, they're in the public interest or in the legal interest, and if the law is broken in any way at all in arriving at that public interest, well, these people should still be punished. And it seems that this government is not interested in whistleblower reform. The Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus did drop the case against Bernard Caleri last year, but this case against David McBride is proceeding, as is the case against Richard Boyle, and Julian Assange is still languishing in jail in London. Now, we expected the Labor government would be reforming whistleblower legislation and that it would drop all of these cases. The situation with Julian Assange is different because that's concerning the laws of a different country, but All of this other legal action, that just needs to end as soon as possible. It defeats me. An officer of the law sees laws being broken and reports them, and it's he who gets arrested. Had they just covered it up, it would still be appalling, but I could comprehend that, if not agree with it, if not be appalled by it, but I could comprehend why you do that. To arrest who seems to be a very sharp and switched-on person, and then to have everything he said come out into the public domain in the courts. And for the party who pretty much implied that they were going to get rid of this type of stuff, uh, I'm absolutely confused as to why they do this. If they really didn't want to bring the various regiments under scrutiny, you say, thanks, David, we'll deal with it and let him get on with it and then bog it down in legal red tape for years. Having said that, what he did was amazing and showed us just how parlous a state some of our military is in and that these things need to be out there. He should be praised, maybe given an OAM, if we still agree with that type of award, certainly promoted, certainly shown to other people as this is what happens. He saw wrongdoing and he saw wrongdoing against people who were supposed to be the very best and he reported it. So I don't understand. I kind of understand with the last government because that was their complete modus operandi. But again, the Labor government doesn't get re-elected with this type of tactic. And we assumed some time ago that the government was just going through the legal motions with this case and with the other cases as well against Richard Boyle. And then they were going to decide to drop the case before the trial started. But the trial has already started, so that's obviously not the case here. And David McBride is a military lawyer. And the argument for the defence is that as a lawyer, he'd have a responsibility to follow the acts of justice and disclose criminality. Now, I'm not sure if that's a strong enough level of material to rest your case on, but this whole process is probably going to be a test of whether the the civilian courts or the military courts are superior and which one would have priority. And here's what David McBride said before he entered the court during the week in Canberra. Today, I serve my country. And the question I have for you, Anthony Albanese, is who do you serve? And perhaps the Attorney General wants to test some laws of primacy or to find out if there's some sort of other arcane practice of law that applies that we don't know about, but it's a disappointing application of the law. And 
Labor, when they're in government, they tend to favour legal reform and reduce the impact of bad laws or remove the unintended consequences of laws. But doesn't seem to be the case with David McBride. And we're not naive about this. And legally, there does have to be a careful navigation of this process. And the advocates of whistleblower protection laws mainly look at it from a human rights and legal reform perspective, but it also attracts an odd collection of other people, such as the sovereign citizen movement and extreme libertarians as well. So a great deal has to be taken into account. I totally acknowledge that. There's protection of whistleblowers. The National Anti-Corruption Commission comes into it as well. There's freedom of the media issues, the public interests, of course, and legal interests. So there is a lot to take in with this, but even still, I'm just really surprised that this has proceeded to this level. It's a really weird case to argue who has the primacy. I'd have thought a, a more mundane crime, a burglary or a, a theft or something in which military law and civil law crossed over, uh, much less controversially, say. Well, we might have to look at Breaker Morant again. Exactly. Is Edward Woodward still around to do the sequel? Again, why you'd want to discourage people as a government from corruption in the public service, from corruption in your own party, why you'd want to, and maybe I've just answered the question, why you'd want to discourage people from being there. And I know too that whistleblowing laws can be, in rare cases, contentious. Again, thanks to that notion of frivolous and the courts being tied up by, um, or the investigators being tied up by untrue claims because so-and-so didn't like their supervisor for whatever reason, so puts in a whistleblower claim that is unfounded, and you have to spend time and resources on that. But you'd think that you would encourage the important cases. Come and see us. Come and see us anonymously. We will investigate. And if something comes up, we will apply due process and see what the story is. It doesn't seem to me to be that hard, but for whatever reason, they're finding it very hard. And I know that particularly around Armistice Day and, and to an even greater extent around Anzac Day, which are now only six months apart each, you don't want to cut into the narrative of Australian soldiers were all good, brave and true, which we know isn't the case. Most of the Australian Defence Forces perform extremely difficult and arduous and dangerous tasks extremely well. But there's always going to be those that don't. And why you wouldn't want to flush them out and get rid of them with appropriate consequence will defeat me and will always defeat me. The record number of MPs sitting on the crossbench has been broken again. It was 17 and now it's gone up to 18 with the resignation of Russell Broadbent from the Liberal Party. And if you're wondering who Russell Broadbent is, that's a very good question because he is one of those politicians who is not seen and not heard from very much. And he has had three stints in Parliament from 1990 to 93, 1996 to 98, and then from 2004 onwards, and that's a total of 25 years. And he is a Liberal Party moderate in Victoria, and that doesn't sit well with the Liberal Party of the past 30 years. So aside from being the local member, he hasn't really achieved that much in politics. And he lost his pre-selection for the next federal election, and he's done a dummy spit and resigned from the Liberal Party. 
So it's now the largest crossbench in Australian history, and that's not going to make any difference in this parliament, but it does make the next election a little bit more interesting. And this could be another one of those seats that falls from the Liberal Party and over to one of the Teal independents. A good Teal will easily take the seat. A decent Green might take the seat. And you never know, a a Labor Party in which the planets align and the wind blows in the right direction might take the seat. I'm hoping they've selected a strong local because I think that's really the only path the Liberal Party have back rather than pre-selecting philosophically correct people who have no connection with the community. But it does mean that the purge of the moderates is still happening to a greater or lesser extent. The little I knew about Broadbent was that he was on the moderate wing of the Liberal Party. If the Liberal Party keeps moving right, they will lose even more badly. And it looks like our next parliament will have reduced Liberal Party, reduced Labour Party, and be mostly made up of independents with some Greens. I think if Simon Holmes a court is going to be funding Teal candidates again. That's certainly a seat I'd be looking at very closely to get a good, strong local candidate. Oh, well, Russell Broadband does hold that seat by a margin of 2.9%. And I'd say that if a good Teal independent candidate can be found, this could be another seat lost by the Liberal Party. And it's not exactly a Teal type of seat, but anything could happen. And with that margin of 2.9%, as you suggested, David, that could actually go to the Labor Party as well. And... Mary Aldred is the pre-selected candidate, and it seems that the Liberal Party is trying to ensure itself from the possibility of a Teal candidate arriving in the next federal election campaign. And they're also, I guess, trying to create generational change within the party, and this is something that they really have to do. But I don't think that it's so much the candidates that they're choosing or the MPs they've got. It's the Liberal Party itself. You do get good people going into the Liberal Party. They don't get anywhere by being a decent person and follow the right-wing reactionaries to get ahead. And you can just ask Katie Allen in Victoria about that. A decent person before she entered politics became the member for Higgins, tried to surf the wave of awfulness of the Liberal Party to get ahead, lost at the last federal election and then went back to being a normal person again once she left the Liberal Party or once she left politics. And the Liberal Party, especially in Victoria, they seem to radicalise people like Katie Allen. And uh, you could just ask Karen Andrews in Queensland what you have to do to succeed as a Liberal Party MP, especially if you're a woman. You could just ask Bridget Archer in Tasmania, who's not getting anywhere by being a moderate within the Liberal Party. And now the Tasmania branch of the Liberal Party is trying to disendorse her in the seat of Bass and trying to get rid of her from Parliament. So at the moment, the Liberal Party is still the party of John Howard and Tony Abbott and of Peter Dutton. And they're not the party of Menzies and Malcolm Fraser. It's still got many issues to sort out. So Technically, they've lost this seat up until the next election, at least. But my feeling is that the temporary loss of the seat might end up becoming more permanent in the future. It seems that the Liberal Party is losing seats permanently. I can't see Kuyong coming back over the next two or three elections. Of course, anything can happen. It's possible that Monique Ryan or Allegra Spender or any of the other Teals or even the pre-Teals like Helen Haynes from Indi and Zali Siegel turn out to be crooked in some way. When I say it's possible, it's also possible that we'll be hit by an asteroid in the next five minutes. I don't think there's much chance of that. Things can go wrong. Good members do silly things. One poorly worded speech 
and you're gone at the next election. But these are pretty capable people. David Pocock in Canberra, uh, he's in the Senate, of course, but he won what had been a Liberal seat. There are no Liberal members in Canberra at the moment, and I don't think they'll come back. And this is, of course, for the Liberal Party, disastrous. Iconic Liberal seats, Kuyong, Higgins, North Sydney, Wentworth. Now, Wentworth has always been a bit dodgy over the last 20 years with the powerhouse of the independent Clover Moore at a local level, and she was at a state level too. But these are seats that the Liberal Party shouldn't have to worry about, and they're gone forever, I think, or at least forever in political terms, two or three terms. It would be like Labor losing Graindler. It's something that was unthinkable two or three elections back, but now is seeing as something that is possible. Yeah, the Liberal Party has to either reform, change or die. And I've said before, if we go into a a period of minority government with totally negotiated policy that could fall apart at any time, so everyone's got to be very careful, that may not be a bad thing. That may lead us to things like solutions to the housing crisis, a more consistent and reasonable foreign affairs policy. Inflation. Of course, things will be worse in the short term, but they always seem to be worse in the short term. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. The war in Gaza continues and is going from bad to worse. The Israel military is continuing with its bombing of Gaza. More and more civilians are being killed in Gaza and more Palestinians are being forced away from their homes. And as we suggested last week, there is more international pressure being placed on the Israel government to cease fire and stop their process of killing civilians, stop the process of ethnic cleansing and work towards a resolution. But this is never going to happen by itself and there needs to be an international framework or international intervention and support to stop this action by the Israeli military. And this is now being considered as the second Nakba, and that's a repeat of the catastrophe that occurred in 1948 when 700,000 Palestinians were violently expelled from Palestine. And there is a school of thought that it's been a continuous Nakba over the past 75 years, and it's a process of ethnic cleansing that has never really ended. And The more people know about what's happening in Gaza and the history of the region, the more outraged they are about the behaviour of the Netanyahu government and the Israeli military. But closer to home, there doesn't seem to be a change in the position of the Australian government and they're still not supporting a ceasefire in Gaza and they're still arguing the point that Israel does have a right to defend itself and they certainly don't have a right to kill civilians on this scale and destroy Gaza. But in Parliament, there was this confrontation between the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, and the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. I never thought that I would see in my lifetime a repeat of the horrific scenes that we saw and that we've read about during the course of uh, the Second World War repeated in our lifetimes, but to see people of Jewish faith cowering in their homes 
being dragged from cupboards out into the street, when children are still abducted and still held hostage, this Prime Minister needs to stand up and to be united with the Jewish community. And he's not. The words have been qualified, the message divided, and the Australian public has looked to the Prime Minister and not identified this man compared to the man that they voted for in May of 22, less than 18 months ago. Well, when people look for a definition of overreach, they will search for this motion. Let's move by the Leader of the Opposition. There is no issue too Order. big for Members him to show left. how Member small Padikin he is. Will and the weaponisation or attempt to weaponise anti-Semitism in this chamber and make it a partisan issue is frankly beyond contempt. Frankly beyond contempt. I spoke in this chamber on Monday about the events in Caulfield and about the events in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, there Order. was no qualification, no qualification whatsoever in my condemnation. But I also have a track record of standing up Order. for the rights and for justice of Palestinian people. Yeah. And I make no apologies for being a consistent supporter of a two-state solution. Yeah. And I make no apologies for trying to bring communities together, not divide them, because that's the role of political leaders. But at a time, at a time when there is, there is social division, leaders have a choice. They have a choice to either bring people together or divide them. Try to look for unity or look for opportunism. And what we have seen Order. from this the bloke here Fairfax is consistent with Groom. his entire political career has been based upon division. And I think this is a problem in Australian politics. On this issue, whatever your perspective is, there is no room for social division. And this is exactly what Peter Dutton is trying to do. Exploit division, ramp up the fear and loathing, create friction, lie about it and hope to reap some kind of political benefit out of it. It's a strange approach. The deaths of innocent people, the propaganda flying around. I saw on one of the social media sites the other day, someone claimed that they'd found a list of Hamas operatives in the basement of a hospital and it turned out it was a calendar. And even if you didn't read Arabic, it was clearly a calendar. All types of claims, some of which may be true, some of which can't be true, some of which it's too hard to judge. And that's part of the nature of war. But the number of non-combatants being killed, and that starts from October 7th with the Hamas bombing. The other thing too is that both sides don't really have popular support. Hamas was in government in Palestine, but it was on a very large and wavering coalition. So that they, Hamas doesn't have popular support. Netanyahu, Likud, doesn't have mass popular support. It's something that from the outside, you have to be very careful. I think the only sensible solution is to demand a ceasefire and that there were those countries which included Australia and Canada and a few others who abstained I still think is extremely problematic and I know that it's to do with international relations and and Australia has made some noises 
to at least ameliorate the abstention without denying it. And I note Penny Wong was criticised by the Australian Jewish Association for going in a worrying direction. And I know that the Australian Jewish Association is not really seen as representative of the whole Jewish community in Australia and is a rather divisive organisation. Peter Dutton doesn't have the subtlety of thought or the intelligence to be able to deal with this matter in a way that will be in term advantageous to him. The fact that he's thinking in this type of way is probably enough to show us that he's not up to the task of commenting on this. And I think it's not going to end well for him. And I think this can so easily get out of hand, and it is getting out of hand quite easily. A Palestinian burger shop was firebombed in Caulfield by supporters of Israel, and Police have denied that there were any political motivations here, but they probably said that just to de-escalate the situation. And people who wanted to show their support for the Palestinian burger shop held a rally in Caulfield, and they were accused of trying to cause trouble there because the rally was located near a synagogue, even though they didn't know that it was there. And the opponents, they wanted to stop Palestinians entering Caulfield, and I didn't think that Caulfield might have been a suburb in Tel Aviv, and Palestinians were actually allowed to be in Caulfield, but obviously other people have got different ideas about this. But the point that I'm making is that it's best that leaders tread carefully on domestic issues and avoid inflaming tensions. And and that seems to be what Peter Dutton is all about, inflame tensions, and it's pretty much all he's got. And we saw it with the African gangs and the can't go out to restaurants in Melbourne rhetoric, terrorism, asylum seekers, immigrants, and all of these are classic talking points of the basic right-wing populace. And we saw it with his behaviour during the Voice of Parliament as well. And there is that old quote that it's far easier to make war than it is to make peace. And the clever politician makes peace, the dumb and lazy politician makes war, because that's always the easy thing to do. But Where there's trouble, that's where Peter Dutton is. Where there's division, that's where Peter Dutton is. And in most of these cases, he's the one actually causing that trouble and division, and mainly because he doesn't seem to know any better. He lacks the subtlety of thought that would say, hold on, these are all Australian citizens. Peaceful protesting, and there's been a lot of very peaceful protests uh, on, and I hate, I'm getting to really hate this phrase, but on both sides. <laughs> but the pro Israeli protests have been peaceful. The pro Palestinian protests have been peaceful. I saw, it seemed like 5,000 people in Hyde Park the other day on a very inflamed subject that there's a lot of passion and a lot of very high feelings about. It was rowdy. They were chanting, they were, but it was peaceful. No arrests were made. I think there was one protest where five arrests were made. And out of 15,000 people, that's nothing. And the arrests weren't that serious. I think it was not doing precisely what a police officer said in terms of where to stand or something. And I don't think charges were laid. So I think, sure, the protesters maybe should have done a quick Google search to make sure that there wasn't any anything around that might inflame the tension. But then again, maybe they shouldn't. Peaceful protests should be absolutely allowed. Disruptive, sure. Loud, noisy, sure. But not destructive and not violent. And Dutton, I don't think ever understands this but right-wing protests are okay apparently it's only when he doesn't agree with them that we start to get the tut-tutting and the oh look at what these others do whereas you know protests peacefully done should be allowed and obviously try not to inflame a protest by being irresponsible about it 
And there was another Albanese in town during the week, and this one was Dr Francesca Albanese, and she's the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Territories of Gaza and West Bank, and she spoke at the National Press Club this week, and I promised that I wouldn't criticise or speak poorly of the media this week or any other journalist, but I think Dr Albanese's words do speak for themselves. Here's one exchange at the National Press Club. There is a risk of genocide being committed by Israel and also the capacity to do that. When you say they have, I mean, if they wanted to, it would probably be done to be blunt about it. Yes, it's a dire situation for civilians, but Israel did say, civilians, please leave, this is where we're targeting. So that wasn't them actually targeting civilians at that point. As my friend Daniel Levy told the BBC journalist, and I beg your pardon, I, mean, don't, I don't mean to be rude, but can you really keep a straight face as you ask me this question? And here's another exchange. I couldn't help but being tripped up by the very ending of your speech where you said that ending Jewish-Israeli domination would be rehumanizing acts for them as well. I just want to ask whether that sort of comment is helpful in the current climate, talking about ending Jewish-Israeli domination, where domination has a, a wider connotation outside that context. What do you mean? I, talking about Israeli-Jewish domination. Meaning, are you asking me uh, in Israel? Well, I, Would, I, I, I just, the phrase jumped out at me at the end of your speech, and I'm just wondering if the, the trope of domination... Uh, is no, it's not a trope. It's really real. So it yeah. seems not to understand what I'm saying. There is an apartheid regime. No, I'm serious. There is an apartheid regime. It's domination. This is not a trope. This is international law. I encourage you to read the apartheid convention because it talks about racial domination. And this is what I'm talking about. It might be a trope into your, sorry, into the way you interpret it. But I'm using domination in a strictly legal sense. And here's yet another. Um, you've said previously uh, that it should ultimately up, be up to Palestinians to decide who governs in Gaza um, and that Israel should be open to making a peace deal with Hamas. Um, given that uh, Hamas leaders since October 7 have said repeatedly that they would like to repeat these attacks, uh, is that really possible? Is Hamas really a potential a partner for peace or would the defeat or surrender of Hamas be part of any realistic peace agreement in Gaza. I'm sorry, I cannot answer the question because you are based, basing yourself on something that has been reported and it has been completely distorted. Sorry, I mean, you have some media who's really as manipulative as those in Italy. And I thought that the... <laughs> no. No, I've said, I've said something, something else, that the military response cannot be war must be peace and the peace must be done with the Palestinians but I mean I'm also speaking of uh, a non-legal peace a peace a, a reconciliation with the idea that Palestinians have same humanity and same entitled to rights freedom and, and dignity than the Israelis so it was a very beautiful 35 minute conversation and this is what the journalists got I mean I'm, I'm sorry but this is not what I said it's been completely distorted and she totally owned that room of journalists. And as I said, her comments really do speak for themselves. And there were a few strange moments through social media where a lot of people thought that Francesca Albanese and Anthony Albanese were actually a wife-husband team and a little bit like Malcolm and Lucy Turnbull. And might have been a case where Anthony Albanese hoped that he was Francesca Albanese just for that one day at the National Press Club. But 
Dr Albanese doesn't have any political responsibility. She can be a lot more forthright about what she says and remembering that as a member of the United Nations, she's speaking on behalf of the whole world and the world is much bigger than the interests of Israel. It's much bigger than the interests of all the white countries in the world. So that's her audience and Anthony Albanese does have to be a little bit more circumspect. But there's also that link between the respective military industries in Australia and Israel and Australia does supply military hardware to Israel. So there's a strong possibility that Australian-made hardware has been used to kill Palestinian civilians in Gaza. And there's been 52 military export licenses to Israel this year. And we're not sure what the value of this is because the Department of Defense won't release that information. And the value of all exports to Israel is $345 million per year. And we can't tell if this $345 million includes any military hardware exports or whether it's over and above this figure, but it probably gives an insight into why Anthony Albanese keeps saying that Israel does have a right to defend itself because there's a vested interest here. Australia does seem to be part of that process and the military trade isn't cheap. So the Australian government could be actually making quite a bit of money out of this arrangement. Till we know, we can't know, which is a bit silly. And I think in this case, we should know because... Well, that's absolutely right. But 52 military export licenses this year, unless they've made 52 export licenses for one bullet each, it's probably likely to be a lot more than that. It's just distressing. And again, international politics is a complex field. The Israel-Gaza situation is extremely complex and is tied up with local politics there, and as well as longer philosophical discussions that have been had since at least 1972. And you can go back to 48, and you can probably go back to Masada in 2060 or whenever it was transparency has got to be the issue you know this is what we're doing this is how much we're saying this is why we're sending it we locked into contracts 10 years ago we we can't really get out of them if that's the case or we decided that we're supporting israeli expansion for these reasons and we understand that this is against quite a lot of people in our party just this week the labor branch of Graindler passed a motion for a ceasefire in gaza which goes against the prime minister's official policy someone pointed out that uh, not that long ago Anthony Albanese would have moved the motion. And now, of course, he is the recipient against it. And this is one of the natures of politics too. Your mind can change or your mind can be changed for you. That's not to defend. I'm just noticing that this is something that happens to a lot of politicians. What they say outside of government is often not only different, but contradictory to what they say inside of government. And that's something that we have to change about the system. And it can't just be a case where the claim of anti-Semitism is used whenever the Israel government is criticised or Benjamin Netanyahu is criticised or the Israel military. And I think that this is now working against the interests of Israel. And it's almost like the Israel government can't see the problems for itself because nobody is putting enough pressure on the state of Israel. And I don't think telling them to show restraint is really showing much pressure at all. But Gaza does need to be resolved and it cannot continue like this. I think we've said this quite a few times over the past month. And there is more pressure starting to come from the international community. And we've also been saying that a lot more recently. And the leader who ended up getting the most concessions and progress on Israel was President Jimmy Carter in the late 1970s. And he was advised by Henry Kissinger that 
These guys in the Israel government are tough bastards and, and they only respond to tough talk and being the tough bastard with them. And this doesn't actually fit in with the public persona of Jimmy Carter, but that's what he managed to achieve. Every other leader has let Israel do whatever it wants since that time. And this is the result after 40 years. And this is what happens in politics. If political leaders are allowed to do whatever they want, well, they will do whatever they want. And that's the issue that needs to change within Israel. He sat them down, he got them to shake hands and bought at least a temporary peace to the Middle East for some time and rightly won the Nobel Peace Prize for it. If you're going to give these things out, it was one of the ones that a US president deserved. Of course, Jimmy Carter, probably the most decent human being to be president in the 20th century. If he's not the most, he's in the top two or three. In terms of his approach and his beliefs, as president, he probably wasn't one of the better presidents, although that was more because he tried to act like other presidents and it just wasn't in him, I think, and had the hawks, Brzezinski and Kissinger, advising him against most of his better instincts. Oh, but the point is that he was very tough with the yeah. Israeli leadership at that time, and that's the thing that bore the fruits of his negotiations. Noam Chomsky said that Israeli governments have been like a spoilt child who just demand what they want and scream till they get it. That's really a debate for another time and probably another podcast. But certainly Netanyahu's desperation of his own local politics, he's facing very serious corruption charges. He doesn't have the fullest support that he'd like in either parliament or the broader Israeli community. It's taken him to desperate places, which may well be the bigger the hole he's digging for himself gets, the harder it will be to get out of it, I think. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Listener.